imagine with me uh, someone who decides that gas prices have just gotten a little too high. It's not hard to imagine that, right? And uh, he decides it's just so incredibly high that he's going to start making some counterfeit money to pay for it. So he does a little research and he sets up shop in his basement and makes his first batch of bills. Imagine he'd feel a little nervous when he decides I'm actually going to try to use these. What's going to happen? He goes to uh, the gas station clerk with a few of his counterfeit 20s in hand, and he nervously hands them to the clerk and uh, waiting, and then here's, have a nice day. And he gets away with it. He pumps his gas, and having gotten away with it once, he continues to perfect his craft and begins using the counterfeit cash not only to buy gas here and there, but to buy anything he wants, groceries, movie tickets, clothes, you name it. Now, this guy's good at counterfeiting, all right? But he gets so used to this, actually, that uh, one day he forgets that it's actually counterfeit. It's not real cash, and he, he tries to deposit some in the bank. What's going to happen to him at that point? He's going to go to jail is what's going to happen. He may have been able to convince the gas station clerk or the grocery attendant, but he will not pull one over at the bank. Now, here's why I tell this make-believe story of our delusional counterfeiter here. So there are a lot of people who are just like this. Their currency isn't cash. Their currency is religion. The currency is external religion. They go to church. They play on the music team. They serve in the nursery. They give to the offering, hopefully not counterfeit money, but they give to the offering. They participate in the Bible study. They travel on the short-term missions trip. They help break down tables after the fellowship meal. And doing all of these things, they convince those around them that they are followers of Jesus. Like our counterfeiter, they might even begin to believe it themselves. But for so many people, underneath all the external religion lies an unchanged heart. And though they can convince the whole world that they are true, one day they will hear from the Lord who searches the heart, you're a counterfeit. My prayer this morning is that no one who hears this message today will ever hear those words from the Lord. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 14. We're continuing our series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. Church, I want to tell you that we are turning the corner from the first half of the second half of the book today. thought we'd never get here, right? We're halfway through. Uh, but we are going into Matthew 15 today. Our text is Matthew 14, 34 through Matthew 15, verse 20. Matthew 14, 34 through 15, 20. And let's read the passage. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So the passage begins with Jesus and his disciples landing in a region called Gennesaret. And we can see as he lands the sheer scope of his ministry because verse 35 tells us that the people that were there recognized him. Uh, he had never been here before, but they, they recognized him and they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. So the men said, that, that's Jesus. And they, and, they, and they give the call to everyone, Jesus is here, bring, bring your sick. Because Jesus has finally made it to our town. And Matthew goes on and paints this incredible scene of all these sick people seeking just to touch the fringe of his garment so that they could be healed. Maybe they had heard about the woman who touched the fringe of his garment and was healed. And they they just want to get close enough to touch the fringe. And verse 36 tells us, and as many as touched it were made well. So again, as we've seen before, Matthew, we see this, the powerful healing ministry of Jesus here in this town. But the sick people were not the only people who came to see Jesus in this town. Chapter 15 opens up by telling us, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. The Pharisees and scribes, we know, were the religious leaders of the community. They were regarded as righteous students of the scripture. So why are they coming to Jesus here? Are they also coming to be healed? Were they desiring to experience the powerful ministry of Jesus as well? No, they weren't coming to touch Jesus. They were coming to trap Jesus. It's been a few chapters since we've seen the scribes and Pharisees, but one of the last things that we did see was in chapter 12, verse 14, where we read this, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. That's why they're here. That's why they've come to Jesus from Jerusalem to this little town to get rid of him, to undermine his ministry, to find a way to destroy him. And the way that they go about doing this is by seeking to expose Jesus as a lawbreaker. That's what they want to do. They want to expose Jesus as a lawbreaker. And so they ask this question in verse 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, a word needs to be said about what the Pharisees and scribes refer to here as the tradition of the elders. This isn't the same kind of tradition that we might think of when we use that word. We think of family traditions at Christmas, like caroling, or or cultural traditions at sporting events. But what they're referring to is not that. They're referring to a collection of rabbinical interpretations of the law, an, an authoritative collection of interpretation from rabbis, that gave detailed rules of conduct that if you followed all these rules, it guaranteed 
that you were within the bounds of the law. The, the tradition of the elders was a fence around the law. And as long as you remained in that fence, you could say, I've kept the law. So in their minds, the, the, the tradition of the elders carried equal authority to the law itself. Breaking the tradition of the elders was a matter of breaking the law itself. Now, the specific tradition in question was the washing of hands before eating. And I just want to affirm, as an aside, that we should wash our hands before we eat. We have a fellowship meal next Sunday. Let's at least put some Germex at the front of the line and use that. But this tradition was not about physical hygiene. This was about ceremonial cleanness. So if you go back to the Mosaic Law, it's filled with instructions about cleanness and uncleanness and, and how to wash if you've been defiled. And what the tradition of the elders had done was, was they took these general instructions from the law and they developed some highly specific practices around them to fence those instructions in. And so, for instance, one commentator describes that uh, the tr tradition prescribed a certain amount of water if you were only washing one hand, but a different amount of water if you were washing both hands. And to be considered truly clean, you had to use that prescribed amount of water. That's not in the Mosaic Law. That's in the tradition of the elders. Well, apparently the disciples didn't practice these traditions, and this would have been because Jesus, who was their rabbi, never instructed them to practice these traditions. This didn't make it into Jesus' school of discipleship. And so the question about his disciples is really a charge against his own teaching. So what's Jesus' response? With the rest of our time, we're going to see that Jesus responded in two ways. First, in verses 3 through 9, we see that Jesus denounces external religion. And then we're going to see in verses 10 through 20 that Jesus describes the human condition. He denounces external religion. He describes the human condition. So let's look at the first of those two responses. He denounces external religion. Let me ask, do any of you uh, describe yourselves as a non-confrontational person? Anyone say, no, I'm non-confrontational. You don't, you don't like confrontation. Okay, though Jesus didn't go picking fights, we can definitely say he wasn't afraid of confrontation. Look at how he responds in verse 3. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? I mean, he fires right back at them, doesn't he? Jesus immediately separates what the Pharisees and scribes had put together. In their minds, the tradition of the elders was an authentic extension of the scriptures. But according to Jesus, it was an antithetical addition to the scriptures. There's the commandment of God, there's the word of God, and then there's the tradition, and they are not the same thing. And Jesus accuses the Pharisees and scribes, who were known for their understanding of the scripture, known for their righteous lives, he accuses them of disobeying the scriptures in favor of their tradition. Now to the listening crowds, this would be a shocking accusation, and so Jesus goes on to give an example of how they do this in verses 4 through 6. He says, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Those are God's commands. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you've gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. In other words, Jesus says, you use tradition as a loophole to avoid actual obedience. According to God's word, part of honoring your parents is to provide for their needs as they age. But the tradition of the elders allowed someone to declare their wealth as devoted to God. And once it was declared as devoted to God, then that wealth could not be used for their parents' sake anymore. Well, in reality, that wealth was 
very rarely actually given to the temple or given to the Lord. It was kept as security for themselves. This would be like someone today telling their parents that they couldn't help them in their need because they devoted their savings to missions while their savings just continues to sit in their own account. The tradition was not an outlet for applying the law. It was a cover for breaking the law and for feeling self-justified in doing so. So Jesus uh, establishes how they are letting the tradition trump the clear teaching of the law. And then he goes from that uh, evidence to the conclusion in verse 7. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Now I think we hear the charge of hypocrisy against the church a lot, don't we? But we can say this. Jesus was against hypocrisy. Jesus was against hypocrisy too. The word hypocrite was originally used to describe a Greek play actor, someone who wore a mask, someone who put on a show, someone who who presented something other than they were. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's what you're doing. All your righteousness, all your supposed good works, all your tradition keeping, it's not real, it's not genuine. You're a hypocrite. You're putting on an act. You're a counterfeit. And then Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment of the scriptures, he applies the scriptures to the Pharisees as a final indictment against them. Verses 7 through 9, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So so he quotes Isaiah to them. and, And one of the primary things you see in the book of Isaiah is that external religion was alive and well in Isaiah's day. External religion was alive and well. They gathered for worship. They sacrificed to the Lord. They fasted. They prayed. The problem was their actual lives weren't righteous. And so the Lord condemns their external religion because, because it didn't mean anything. All the religious activity didn't line up with how they actually lived their lives. And so the Lord said their worship, all of their worship activity was in vain. It was a vain attempt at righteousness and that in reality their hearts were far from him. What does that mean, your heart is far from me? What that means is that you don't truly know the God you profess to honor with your lips. You don't truly love the God that you say you are obeying. Your heart is far from me. You're not, you're not reconciled to me. Well, Jesus takes this ancient prophecy that Isaiah spoke against the people of his day, and he says to the Pharisees and scribes, Isaiah did such a great job describing you guys. Well did he prophesy of you. They might have protested. He's not talking about us. He's talking about the ancient Israelites. But listen, God's word is living and active, and through Isaiah, the Holy Spirit was referring to the ancient Israelites and to first century Pharisees, and to 21st century nominal Christians. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, American Christian. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. That's that's for today as well. I want to ask you this morning, as Jesus denounces external religion, do his words describe you? If you claim to be a follower of Christ, what shape does that actually take in your life? Does your Christianity primarily consist of external religion and of keeping Christian tradition? Or is it marked by actual love to God and others? Another question, as a follower of Jesus, are you more concerned with fulfilling religious checklists or with bearing the fruit of the Spirit? 
Do you think God is pleased with you because you attend church and you serve and you give and you fast? Or do you understand that these external activities are all in vain if they're not marked with awe of God, joy in God, gratefulness to God, and humility before God? Are you wearing a mask before others? Are you wearing a mask before the Lord? Jesus denounces external religion. He denounced it then. He denounces it today. And so I urge you this morning to examine your heart and ask the Lord, is my heart far from you? Ask the Lord that. Is my heart far from you? That's Jesus' first response to the Pharisees' question. He denounces external religion. Now let's look at a second response. Jesus describes the human condition. Jesus describes the human condition. Verses 10 and 11, we read this, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In other words, what you eat doesn't make you unclean. What you speak makes you unclean. That's what he's saying. This is a radically new message to people who had lived their entire lives learning the minutia of external religion from the scribes and the Pharisees. You know what? The Pharisees didn't like it either. Look at verse 12. The disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? This gives us a little window into the high regard that people had for the Pharisees. You know, we just think of them as the bad guys, right? But, but look, even after all the confrontation Jesus has already had with them, the disciples, they're a little worried that the Pharisees are offended, right? But Jesus, you know, you kind of upset them when he said that. Well, Jesus is not unsettled by this at all. Look at verse 13. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Listen, he doesn't just say the Pharisees are wrong. He says they're lost. They might be the visible leaders of Israel, but the Father didn't plant them there. And they face his judgment. Jesus doesn't just say the scribes have a different interpretation. He says they are blind guides, as blind as the people that they are teaching the scriptures to. And anyone who follows them is going to follow them into a pit that they can never escape from. Jesus doesn't mince words here. External religion is the same thing as lostness. Those who practice external tradition and, and, and external religion, those who rely on these things, are completely lost. And so the call to true disciples in this is let them alone. Let them alone. Stop regarding them as spiritual guides. They're false teachers. They're foreign plants in God's garden. They're blind guides. Let them alone. Well, again, there's Peter then, who is still struggling to put all of this together. As the New Testament unfolds, we learn that it takes quite a long time for Peter to, to really get it. And here he, he says, explain the parable to us, Jesus. And Jesus, with a slight rebuke, spells it out, starting in verse 16. He said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. 
So if you think about these last few verses, it's true that Old Covenant law is filled with laws regarding cleanness and uncleanness. And for the Jews under the Old Covenant, there were certain foods that were considered unclean, which the Israelites were not to eat. And if they ate them, they would be considered unclean. So, so that was true under the Old Covenant. But we need to step back and remember that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and that in Jesus, these laws uh, take on new, transformed, deeper meaning. And here he is bringing that new meaning about. And so first he's, he's stating the obvious, which is that whatever you eat, your body digests and eventually expels. What enters the mouth is not what defiles you. Mark tells us that when he said this, he pronounced all food clean. Again, something that Peter took a while to understand if you read the book of Acts. So Jesus has, has transformed the law at one level here, but now he points to what, what, what were the clean laws really about then? Well, what does defile us? He says it's what comes out of our mouths, the words we speak. Well, in what sense does what we speak defile us? And here he tells us, he says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Every expression of evil, in fact, that's in our lives ultimately comes from our hearts. Verse 19, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander, all of these proceed from the heart. All of these are what defile a person, and all this leads to this basic truth is that our hearts are the problem. Our hearts are the problem. This is the human condition that Jesus describes. Every single one of us is born with a sinful nature. Every one of us, even these cute little babies that have been born recently, Amen, right? <laughs> We're all born with a sinful nature, with an unnatural bent toward evil, with hearts that are inclined towards sin, and all our actions ultimately flow from our hearts. And those actions are sinful because our hearts are evil. I mean, just think about our world this week. All the different headlines our minds could go to right now, the evil in our world, what's the fundamental problem? The fundamental issue in our world is that human beings are not basically good. We are basically evil. Every one of us. The problem underneath every problem is our own hearts. I want to ask you again, where do you struggle to be the kind of person that God calls you to be? Do you struggle with speaking kind words? It's because you have a heart problem. Do you struggle with gossip? Well, you have a heart problem there. Laziness, lust, looking down on others, you have, you have a hard issue in those things. Complaining, worry, all of these things proceed from our hearts. We have a heart problem. And here's the connection between Jesus' denouncing of external religion and his description of the human condition. This is the main idea this morning. External religion cannot redeem the human condition. External religion cannot redeem the human condition. To put it another way, the works of our flesh cannot change the problem of our hearts. The works of our flesh cannot change the problem of our hearts. And to put it one more way, the observance of tradition cannot bring us near to God. 
the observance of tradition cannot bring us near to God. Listen to what Paul says about external religion and tradition keeping in Colossians 2, 23. He says, Human precepts and teachings have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's a very honest verse, isn't it? He says, external religion appears effective in a way. It seems like it works to a degree. I mean, someone might, through their own willpower, end up looking pretty good and being a pretty disciplined person and staying away from, from all the major sins that you want to stay away from. Paul says, these things might appear like they work, but they are of no value, no value in addressing our real problem. External religion can do nothing for our hearts. It has no value in actually conquering our sinful desires. And here's why that is. Because the fundamental issue of our hearts is that we are glory thieves. That's that's why we do what we do. That's why our hearts are bent the way they are. Is because we are not giving glory to God. We are stealing glory for ourselves in every action that we take. And what this means is that while on the outside we are putting forth every effort to appear righteous internally, we are indulging our sinful nature in those things with thoughts of pride and self-reliance and accomplishment. Even our religious efforts are an occasion for self-glory. We're not getting closer to God through external religion. We're getting further from God through external religion. External religion cannot redeem the human condition. And if your Christianity is merely external, then you are still in your sins and you will face God's judgment. You will be uprooted. You will fall into a pit. External religion cannot redeem the human condition. But, of course, we need to ask, well, then what can redeem the human condition? What can stop the indulgence of the flesh? And the answer is not a what, it's who. And I want to point you back to the beginning of the passage again, the picture we have of Jesus in verses 35 and 36 of Matthew 14. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region, and they brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. This is a picture of what Jesus can do for our hearts. Who can redeem the human condition? Only Jesus can. He can cleanse us from the defilement of sin. He can can reach into our hearts and change them. He has the power to do that. But only by coming to Jesus. Not like the Pharisees did, acting like they have something to boast in, but like these sick people did coming in absolute desperation. Just let me touch the fringe of your garment so that I can be made well because I have no other recourse. To completely give up self-reliance, to completely give up any sense of righteousness in yourself and to reach out desperate for him, believing that he can make us well. And he does make us well, not by the physical touch of his garment, but by the spiritual cleansing of the cross. We say in an earlier church, what can wash away my sin? What can make my heart clean? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Our sins have made us unclean and have left us far from God. But Jesus cleanses us through his blood and he brings us back through his death for us. His blood speaks of his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, taking our sin, taking the payment, taking our guilt, and then giving us his pure and clean righteous record in exchange. Jesus had a perfectly pure heart and we're credited with that. And we come to Jesus for this cleansing, and we can be assured that he will give it to us as the people who came with sickness were sure that he would heal them. This is true religion, to to come to the Lord desperate, sick, acknowledging that we have no good in us, and relying totally on his sacrificial death, his cleansing blood, his powerful work of a spirit in our hearts, his unending grace, and he changes our hearts. I want to conclude by referring you back to our delusional counterfeiter one more time. What if he had another option? What if instead of becoming a counterfeiter, he realized he had a benefactor? He had someone with endless resources that he could go to and draw from. Well, the truth is that we have a benefactor in Jesus Christ. We don't need to fake religion. We don't need to fake it. We don't need to counterfeit. We don't need to try to be something we're not. We can come to him completely poor in spirit, completely defiled, and say, I need you to touch me and to change me and to cleanse me and to give me what I need. We don't need to put on a mask. We don't need to be hypocrites. We can bring our hearts to Jesus and receive his forgiving and transforming grace and we can live genuinely pleasing lives to God the Father by his spirit. Through Christ, our hearts can be cleansed and we can be near to God. And so, Redeemer, my call today is let's not fake it. Let's not be hypocrites. Let's not be fakes. Let's not prioritize external religion. Let's bring our hearts to Jesus every day. Poor as we are, desperate for him, and live by the power of his cleansing and transforming grace.